The scripture reading tonight is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him in Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from those stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw that the Spirit of God, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, And alighting on him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. You know, it's a, it's a strange story, this baptism of Jesus. The wild man preacher John out in the wilderness, threatening damnation and demanding repentance. The young man Jesus, who at least in Matthew's gospel we last saw as a baby in the manger. And the white bird, maybe it's a dove, landing on him. There's a lot to talk about here. You could give a whole sermon on the heavens opening, really being torn apart is what the Greek says, or on the dove. Debbie wrote a chapter in her latest book about the bird part of the story, and and I'll get to that myself sooner or later here. But first I want to talk about John the Baptist. He's a disruptive element, that John speaks like a Hebrew prophet. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. And, you know, we're not all that into prophecy here at the House of Mercy. Does it surprise you that I say that? I bet you think we're down with the prophets, right? I mean, we talk about social justice like them, and we're really against empty religious piety. 
So in that sense, we're a prophetic church, right? Well, maybe. But we also describe ourselves as a kind of a low-commitment church, a church that doesn't get too carried away about religion. We take pride in our nuanced, subtle, and highly textured theology. We just trust fanaticism, bombast, anything that sounds like an absolute statement. And in these respects, we're nothing like the prophets. The great Jewish scholar and theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel explains that the mouth of a prophet is a sharp sword. He's a polished arrow in God's quiver. He rarely sings but castigates. His images must not shine, they must burn. The prophet intensifies responsibility, is impatient of excuse, contemptuous of pretense and self-pity. His words are often slashing, even horrid, designed to shock rather than edify. And it's in that tradition that John the Baptist follows. I'm not sure he'd fit in all that well at Ginkgo's or the Turf Club. Oh, we like it that he's wild and unconventional, preaching out there in the wilderness, wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. Maybe he was a leather artisan. That seems like our kind of thing. And his diet, locusts and wild honey, I mean locally sourced organic produce, we're down with that. It, it almost seems like macrobiotic, doesn't it? So it's too bad the guy has to open his mouth. Or at least it's too bad that when he does, he doesn't say something more like this. Hey, folks, I know a lot of you are raised in like fundamentalist Jewish homes by super judgmental parents. And you were dogged by these anti-sexual priests who called you sinners. But here's my message. Our God not only loves you, but he also really likes you just as you are. And sin? Who even knows what that is? I mean, you know, one person's sin is another person's virtue. There really isn't that much black and white in the world. It's all mixed together, you know, messy and embodied and, and brimming with wild, crazy life. Sinners and saints all thrown together in a beautiful collage. So don't listen to all those preachers out there who try to make you feel bad about yourself. Repentance? Hey, no need, you're saved already. Yep, we'd love that kind of a sermon. But the one John gives us about God's wrath and the need for immediate, immediate radical repentance, no consoling words from James Allison, but literally fire and brimstone. And we're not alone in our discomfort either. Mostly churches and preachers ignore John's actual words when preaching on Jesus' baptism. In fact, I had to add that part into the reading for today. The lectionary would have gone just to the baptism part. Now, the one line that does get mentioned, though, from John a little bit, um, in your standard kind of mainline Lutheran or Presbyterian reflection, is the one when John says... Um, 
The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. So what's that about? That's kind of interesting. Um, Some scholars say it's there to explain why Jesus, who's supposed to be without sin and therefore in no need of baptism, submits to being baptized by John. I mean, it probably actually happened as much as we know anything happened. It's in all the the literature and traditions and the Gospels. And it's certainly possible that Jesus was a follower of John. It's interesting, you know, that based on the writings of Josephus, who is this um, Romano-Jewish historian, he's really his writings are the most authoritative source we have for what was going on in Jesus' time in ancient Palestine. problem is Josephus hardly ever mentions Jesus. Maybe he mentions him once or maybe not at all. But he talks about John a lot. And this is one of the things he writes about John. He says, Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God. And that very justly as punishment of what he, Herod, did against John that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man. Herod who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion accordingly John was put to get to death so John i mean some scholars say John may have been an alternative candidate for the messiah he seems to have been maybe a greater threat to the ruling powers and to Rome and Herod than than Jesus was, but at a minimum, it appears that John and Jesus had a very close connection, including many of the same followers. And they were both, they both came to the same fate. They were executed by Rome, or at least at Rome's behest. But these days, the typical sermons, and I've heard a lot of them, is to contrast John with Jesus. You know, John the zealot, fire and brimstone preacher and the legalist, two into the law, versus Jesus, the mercy and grace preacher, the loving, gentle shepherd. But the Gospels don't really support this sharp distinction. In this story, you know, Jesus doesn't dispute anything John says, including that Jesus comes with a winnowing fork in hand ready to gather the good grain, but also to sweep the chaff into an unquenchable fire. In short, the text doesn't contrast Jesus and John, but links them together at the crucial moment when Jesus launches his public ministry. Now, John, he sure is hard on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they weren't the worst people in the world by any means. I wonder what he actually said about the Romans. I mean, that's not recorded because when the Gospels were written, that was too dangerous. Interesting, the only place you're going to find real um, reference to Rome is in the highly symbolic um, book of Revelations, which the right fundamentalists have kind of misappropriated, right? Because... All that stuff about Babylon is actually about Rome, but otherwise, we don't know. But I think we could probably assume, or at least I do, that what Jesus and John had to say about Rome was tougher. This is what he says about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
And they're coming to him for baptism, but he calls them a brood of vipers, seeking baptism just so they can flee from the wrath to come. Repent, he tells them. And don't even think of relying on your standing as pious Jews because God could raise better children of Abraham from a pile of rocks. Strong words, these, but hardly without precedent. John is speaking like a Hebrew prophet. Consider these words from the prophet Jeremiah, directed like John at the leaders of Israel, and to some extent to all the people of Israel. Jeremiah says, The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the animals of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. And I will bring to an end the sound of mirth and gladness, the voice of the bride and bridegroom in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, for the land shall become a waste. And this was because of how Israel and its ruling class treated the poor, the outcast, the widow, and the orphan, and the destitute. There's a direct connection. In John's time, as in in Jeremiah's time, as in John's and Jesus's, and probably ours too, the response of the leaders, they hated to hear these words, and they hated the person who spoke them. Hey, they told Jeremiah, we spend all our time in the temple. Look at us. We're in the temple. We're worshiping all the time. But Jeremiah scoffed. He said, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And this is John's message also, no cheap grace, no easy path to salvation for religious hypocrites who abuse the poor and the powerless. And Jeremiah is no outlier among the Hebrew prophets. The prophet Amos warns that God will condemn those who sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. So, you know, we'd probably worry if we took these words seriously. Look at the poor these days. The wealth gap in the United States today is not only greater than it's ever been in my lifetime, and that's over half a century now, but it's greater than during the lifetimes of my parents who are in their 80s. There's hardly a living person who, uh, in the United States, maybe if you're 100 or 90, who's ever lived in a time of inequality as great as this. You've got to go back to the robber barons before FDR and the New Deal reforms to find anything that matches it. We've got homeless children freezing on the streets, corners, and billionaires amassing ever greater wealth. And our elected representatives are discontinuing unemployment benefits and they're cutting food stamps. And what about prisoners? The prophets talk all the time about prisoners. Isaiah says that being righteous requires us to bring the prisoners out of the dungeons. And yet... We imprison a large percentage of our population, especially poor people, people of color. Some of them are in prison for nonviolent crimes. And as the, the Innocence Project has revealed, many of our prisoners, including those on death row, are innocent of the crimes for which they've been convicted. I was surprised myself how many have been exonerated by um, genetic testing. 
And although it's no longer much in the news anymore, we still haven't closed the brutal and illegal prison at Guantanamo, and prisoners there are on hunger strike. It's the only desperate tactic they think is available to them. They don't have any due process, no hope for relief. And what's the government's response? Force feeding that Amnesty International says amounts to torture. And this part of it isn't even a relic of the Bush administration. It's being done under Barack Obama, the candidate many of us, including me, supported, voted for him twice. I did. I did. It's the unjust detainment and um, torture of the Guantanamo prisoners. Is that on us? Is it? I mean, the prophets would say yes. And it's not so different even outside of Guantanamo. There's hunger strikes in the prisons in California. There's a, an interesting book that's out now by a uh, political scientist named Michelle Alexander. And it's called, it's about the U.S. prison system. It's called The New Jim Crow. She argues that the prisons have become the de facto mechanism for enacting race-based discrimination, the aftermath of civil rights. And, you know, she's got a point. I mean, we imprison here a higher percentage of our population than any other nation on earth, higher than North Korea, higher than China, Russia, Syria, Iraq, you name it. But the prisons are absolutely invisible to many of us. I bet to most of us here, I bet we hardly ever think about them much. Um, but there's so many people, millions of people there. There's a, there's a good show on Netflix now called Orange is the New Black. I don't know if you heard about that one, but we were watching that, Rebecca and I, and um, it's about this um, kind of upper-class woman from graduate of Smith College, and she goes to prison for a drug crime, and um, it opens her eyes. It's based on a true event, and she wrote a book about it, Orange is the New Black, and now there's a series, but... Her point, I heard her interviewed, is how many people are there? Lots, different than you might think. But maybe we argue that, you know, what is Richard talking about all this stuff because we're not doing any of this bad stuff and there's many people here who do a lot to help the poor and the homeless. And some of you out there that I'm talking to are poor. I mean, I, I, at least people that go to this church are poor. There's real economic diversity in this church. And I bet there may be people here working on prisoners' rights, so we're okay, aren't we? Well, see, the problem is the prophets don't seem to give individual passes to well-intentioned Israelites. The entire nation is condemned for the collective crimes against the poor. And the entire community needs to repent, according to the prophets. Well, okay, but, but... We, there's a limited extent to which we have to wrestle with these prophetic texts because we're Jesus people. Jesus is way more chill than all these prophets and John, right? Way more. Well, maybe not so much. I mean, Jesus often sounds like John and the prophets. For example, like when he says in Matthew that the kingdom of heaven will be given to those, to those who serve humanity... For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. But for those who did not feed the hungry, welcome the stranger, visit the prisoner, Jesus says, quote, they will go away into eternal punishment. 
I mean, it's right there in Matthew, and I'm afraid to say it's about as reliable as anything else attributed to Jesus in the Scriptures. Now, you probably know I can't end my sermon here. Though if I were a real prophet, that's just what I'd do. Because these are the words we don't want to hear, and we need to hear them. Words that call us to repentance and transformation. Words saying that grace isn't cheap, and being a Christian or any kind of faithful person isn't easy. It's not really a low-commitment proposition. And just speaking for myself, I actually kind of hate this part of Jesus' message because I'm so implicated by it. So perhaps like you, I really want Jesus to be my personal psychotherapist, assuring me that I'm totally worthy no matter what I do or I don't do. And that's understandable. We do need some assurance in such a rapacious and competitive culture. But there are times when we need to be reminded, I think, that the Bible is a partisan document. Partisan on behalf of the poor and the vulnerable and the disadvantaged. Remember Heschel, prophecy is the voice that God has lent to the silent agony. A voice to the plundered poor, to the profaned riches of the world. Now, at House of Mercy, we often warn against scapegoating people, and that's important. It's a big part of what James Allison says, and I think it's right. But I have to admit, I sometimes get skeptical when I hear it preached that scapegoating is such an equal opportunity enterprise. Anybody can engage in scapegoating, we sometimes say. But how true is that really? I mean, look, it's certainly possible for poor people to hate on rich people. I'm frankly surprised they don't do it more. And African Americans can feel blanket animosity toward white people. And immigrants can hate all privileged U.S. citizens. And for their own sakes, it's good to let go of that probably because hatred for others can eat you up inside without yielding anything like justice. But on the level of social outcomes... Poor people's anger toward the rich and the powerful is nothing like the hostility of the privileged toward their powerless victims. No matter how much a homeless person may hate the Koch brothers, she can't really affect their lives much. But on the other hand, when the organized rich buy votes in Congress and handpick the Supreme Court and then justify their upward distribution of wealth by blaming poor people for being lazy and immoral, that's the sort of scapegoating that destroys lives. There's a power in that kind of scapegoating. And maybe we should stay that instead of being so neutral about power and economics when we caution against it. But you might say, and here's the trump card, Jesus commands us to love our enemies. So how do we reconcile that with these strong prophetic denunciations of the perpetrators of injustice? Well, first of all, neither Jesus nor the prophets deny that we have enemies. You can't love them if you ain't got them. An enemy is a person or group that opposes you. So let's say you're a black person living in Mississippi during the lynching era. Isn't the Ku Klux Klan your enemy? How could it not be? Or a Jew in Germany in the 20s or 30s, or an Egyptian revolutionary today being hunted down by the military. I mean, 
what about a woman in an abusive relationship, right? I mean, your abuser is your enemy. We all have enemies. It's naive to think otherwise. You've got to be really privileged to think otherwise too, I think. But Jesus says we're supposed to love them, not acquiesce to them or trust them or mistake them for friends, but love them as our enemies. And it's not like anybody's in a permanent existential category as enemy, but there are those who act as our enemies, and you have to love them as they're acting that way, and that's really hard. But there's no reason to think John wasn't following that commandment in his sermon. He was calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees to repentance. He wanted them to turn toward God. And it's the same with the Hebrew prophets. They love the people so much they continue to call them to repentance even when it cost them their lives. And that's why Jesus was killed. Not as a necessary sacrifice, but because the values he preached and the love he showed offended his enemies to the very core of their being. Now, I promise you I'd say something about the dove. And don't worry, I didn't forget. So if you've had a chance to read Debbie's book, uh, Consider the Birds, and if you haven't yet, I'd encourage it, you'd know that doves and pigeons are basically the same species of bird. But while people get kind of sentimental about doves, they find pigeons to be, well, pedestrian and dirty and graceless and irritating. And probably because there's, there's so many of them and they're easy to catch, the ancient Israelites sacrificed them, killed them in massive numbers to appease the gods or their god, Yahweh. So using a pigeon as a metaphor for the spirit of God in this baptism of Jesus is a bit startling. Why not like a powerful bird like an eagle or something? Well, maybe we can find an answer, if not the answer, by doing a bit of midrash. Because the Old Testament text that's paired with this baptismal text that we read, it's from the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant. It's a figure that Christians often compare to Jesus, though Jews have a different understanding. But Isaiah describes God's servant in these words. A bruised reed he will not break. In a dimly burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So how can a bruised reed, a dim wick, or a pigeon like God establish universal justice? It makes no sense. Yet the prophets say that God's strength is shown in God's vulnerability. That's what Jesus says, too. That's what Jesus' incarnation means. Whatever you do to the most vulnerable person, you do that unto God, because that's who God is. A God who does not ask for sacrifices, but for acts of simple mercy. And for all his fire and volume, that's what John actually preaches at Jesus' baptism. And when we gather here at the table, we are baptized anew with Jesus in the flowing water of God's mercy. So let us come together in the spirit of John the baptizer, the prophet, and Jesus, the symbol of God. Who knows? If you're lucky, maybe a pigeon will land on your shoulder. <laughs>